And someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who appointed me a judge or arbiter over you? And he said to them, Beware and be on your guard against every form of greed, for not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a certain rich man was very productive, and he began reasoning to himself, saying, What shall I do, since I have no place to store my crops? And he said, This is what I will do. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, You fool, this very night your soul is required of you, and now who will own what you have prepared? So is the man who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. In verse 13, it says that someone in the crowd spoke up. Someone in the crowd, because of the crowd, had to speak up and raise his voice to get Jesus' attention. And what is stunning is that this crowd, as it says in verse 1, they were gathering together and they were stepping on one another. There was like a mob there, and Jesus has to instruct the crowd and his disciples to watch out for the Pharisees, don't live for this life, be ready to be persecuted, live for the things of God, fear God, don't fear man, live for the world to come, don't blaspheme the Holy Spirit, but also know that the Holy Spirit will guide you whenever you have afflictions and are persecuted for standing up for the truth and for doing the will of God. Now after this discourse, this short discourse about living for God and fearing God, it's amazing that somebody in the crowd shouts out this request. This request. It's amazing that he would shout out this request about, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. Jesus is talking about the life to come. He's talking about fearing God and living for him and being guided by the Holy Spirit in all things. And then this man shouts, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the family. He's thinking about money. He's thinking about possessions and land and houses. That's what he's thinking about. He's not thinking about God, even though the Son of God is announcing these words to the crowd. The Son of God is there, and he's already done many miracles, so they would have already been convinced that he was sent from God. But his mind isn't set on the things above. His mind is set on the things that are on the earth. That was his problem. But this problem is a general problem, is it not? Throughout the scriptures, God is constantly trying to get the people to pay attention to heaven, pay attention to eternal life, pay attention to salvation. Don't live for the world. Don't be anxious about the things of the world. Don't worry about what your food is going to be, what your drink is going to be. Don't be anxious. Have no worries. That's what he constantly says throughout the whole Bible. But live for the gospel's sake. So, then he addresses him as teacher. Teacher, why? Because this teacher needs to instruct. He wants him to instruct and give directions, wisdom, advice, orders to somebody else. Not because he is Lord. Not because he doesn't address him as son of God, Lord, son of man, or anything like that, that would have a higher authority. He just wants somebody right there to give a little wisdom and a nudge to his brother. Tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. He doesn't even say please. 
He doesn't even have it as a request. It's a command. Tell my brother. I've got some dispute with my brother and I need you to resolve it because I want what he has. It doesn't give us the background whether this was legitimate inheritance or not, who was in the right and who was in the wrong. That doesn't matter in this context. What matters is he is insisting on earthly things and this is completely out of context. Completely out of context because Jesus is talking about heavenly things. And he's commanding Jesus without any kind of submission, without any kind of modesty and humility. He's commanding Jesus to deal with earthly matters between him and his brother. Jesus knows the attitude and the real motive of this man. That's why he answers in verse 14, but he, Jesus, said to him. Jesus, on the contrary, has something to advise this man. He says, man, who appointed me a judge or arbiter over you? Now, Jesus uses a term of uh, condescension with him. He calls him man. There are other places in Scripture when God or, or the people of God call somebody else man. Remember, Nathan, the prophet, said of David, you are the man, when he was confronting him on his sin. Remember also the people were wondering, how can I please God? How can I please God in Micah chapter 6? And God answers them, he has told you, O man, what is good. You're perplexed about the will of God. You don't know what I said. You don't know what's in the Bible. I already told you what to do. Why are you asking me now? Because they shouldn't have been asking that way. They should have already known. And then the hypocrites of Romans chapter 2. He says, do you think, O man, that you will be able to escape the judgment of God when you are a hypocrite? He says in Romans 2, or in Romans 9, when they don't like this explanation of election and predestination, and it says, someone will say, why does he still find fault for who resists, the will, resists his will? And Paul's answer is, who are you, O man? On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? He doesn't call him friend. He doesn't call him uh, little child or any kind of term of endearment beloved he doesn't say anything like that he says just says man because typically in the bible that's a term of disparagement he's putting him in place he's putting him where he needs to be he's trying to lay him low because humility precedes exaltation now, and if he will humble himself in due time god will exalt him and then jesus shirks off this assignment. He says, who appointed me a judge or arbiter over you? Yes, I am the Messiah, and I know you people are thinking that when Messiah comes, he's going to restore all earthly things and give the nation Israel peace and prosperity. He's going to shake off the Roman yoke. Everything will be fine and swell with the people of God once Messiah comes. Even they who are expecting the Messiah, many of them who are expecting the Christ or the Messiah to come, as prophesied in the Old Testament, were still fixated on the world. They were thinking that Messiah's main purpose or only purpose is to fix the world and not to fix their souls and not to prepare them for the world to come. And Jesus says, who appointed me? I, I haven't come for this purpose. I haven't come to settle all disputes that you have brother with brother or citizen with citizen, or citizen with another uh, uh, citizen of another country, an enemy, or nation against nation. I didn't come to resolve all of these things right now. I did not come for that. 
And then he gets to the heart of the issue, 15. And Jesus said to him, to, to them, sorry, he said to them. Now, after confronting the man individually, now he is giving a lesson to others. It changes. The man put himself on the spot. The man is the one who's foaming at the mouth and, and, and shaming himself by this assertion or this demand from, from Christ. And Jesus is going to put him in place. And he said to them, now he's going to teach everybody listening, beware and be on your guard against every form of greed. There are two warnings there, or twice it's emphasized. Beware and be on your guard. Beware and be on your guard. That's how problematic it is. That's how enticing it is. Is it not in the 10th commandment that it says you shall not covet? You shall not cover your neighbor's house, his wife, his ox, his donkey, or his male servant, his female servant, or anything that belongs to your neighbor? Remember? It says that because that is a perpetual and perennial problem we all have. Greed or covetousness. We see something somebody else has, and instead of waiting on God, trusting God, using lawful means, using moral means to obtain whatever we need to live, with food and covering, with these we shall be content. Instead of that, what do we do? We steal, we connive, we find ways to exploit and, and rip out of somebody's hand something that he possesses. That's what we do. We all do that in, on one level or, or another, either with our eyes and heart internally, and even sometimes externally, we all do that. And he says, beware of that. Beware of every form of greed. Greed can show up just like that. It's like a weed. You keep chopping it down, but the weeds still come up. They still come up. That's the way greed is. It's very hard to predict. It's very hard to withstand. It comes up every day. Every form of it comes up. Then he says, For not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. Even if one has an abundance, if you have every need met, if you have everything you would ever want and ask for, that's not what your life really is. It's not really about that. You're not preparing for the life to come. You allow those things to intoxicate you and blind you to the reality of the, the things that you should be concerned about. Not about your possessions and not about whether you have all the health and wealth that you could ever imagine. That's not what it's about. All the friends you uh, imagine, all the people praising you as you imagine. It's not the abundance of what you have. That's not what life should be about. Life is not about making sure we are smug and happy. Life is about pleasing God, pleasing the Lord, living for Him and living for the world to come. Don't we have lessons of those people, both unbelievers and believers in the Bible, who misused their possessions? Did not Solomon, Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verses 1 to 11, didn't he have all kinds of exploits, all kinds of possessions, all kinds of wealth? He had lack of nothing, Solomon did. He was the richest of the kings of Israel. Yet, what did he say? He says, Thus I considered all my activities which my hands had done, and all the labor which I had exerted, and behold, all was vanity and striving after wind, and there was no profit under the sun. That's 2.11, then 2.17. So I hated life. So I hated life, he says. 
considering everything he pursued because he wasn't living, at least temporarily, he wasn't living for the life to come. So he said it was all vain and useless. What happens later in Luke 16? The rich man and Lazarus. Who goes to be in Abraham's bosom, the good place? Lazarus, the poor beggar, who barely could get some of the crumbs, right, that fell from the master's table. The rich man, though, where did he go? He went to Hades, and there he was in torment. He was in agony in the flames, and he wished that his brothers would repent, his living brothers would repent, so that they not go to that place of torment. Because he didn't realize. He didn't realize in his life, the rich man, that life does not consist of the abundance of one's possessions. And then even later in Luke, Luke 18, what happens? The rich young ruler approaches Christ and asks, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus explains, do this. And he says, well, I've done everything. He says, one thing you lack. Jesus said to him, one thing you lack. Sell all that you have, give to the poor, and come follow me. And what did that rich man do? The rich young ruler. He walked away grieved, for he was one who owned much property. He owned much property, and he did not want to give it up. Jesus said in Luke 9, 23, If any man wants to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. He was unwilling to do that. He did not understand, because he let his possessions poison his mind. Then a parable, verse 16. And he said, and he told them a parable, saying, The land of a certain rich man was very productive. And he began reasoning to himself, saying, What shall I do, since I have no place to store my crops? A parable. Parables, we know, are analogies or illustrations of physical things that compare to spiritual things. That's what a parable is. And he says there was a certain rich man who had a very productive land. He must have owned a lot of land, and it was very productive because he thinks he can sustain himself with all that he yielded from that land. But notice, even though he had an abundance, where his thoughts went, verse 17, he began reasoning to himself. He began reasoning to himself. He's using his perverse, depraved, earthly logic to talk to himself. Instead of talking to God, instead of asking about God's will in the matter, instead of consulting the scriptures, instead of loving God with his abundance, instead of loving his neighbor with his abundance, helping the poor, helping the ministry, helping the work of missionaries, he, instead of doing things like that, he doesn't think about anything like that. He just reasons to himself. He's a very selfish man. A selfish man. What shall I do since I have no place to store my crops? Instead of praising God for the greatness of his abundance, after all, yes, though he and his laborers worked in the field, who actually brought the rain? And who ensured that the seed bore fruit and produced abundant grain? It was God, right? He knows that there is a creator. We all know that there is a creator. Whether we admit it or not, we know that there is a creator. And yet, he did not give glory to God and he did not think about God's place in it. He just said, since I have no place to store my crops, now what am I going to do? 
He's very horizontal. He does not want to think vertically and to look up to heaven and ask the Lord for any guidance. And 18, he says, this is what I will do. It didn't take him long, apparently, to know because he was wise in his own eyes. This is what I will do. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones and there I will store all my grain and my goods. Okay, he apparently has sufficient sized barns, but because of the greatness and the abundance of the crops, instead of sharing them, Ecclesiastes 11.1, cast your bread on the surface of the waters, for you will find it after many days. Instead of casting his bread, sharing with others, doing something that is productive and beneficial to other people, he doesn't do any of that. He wants to hoard it all. He's a greedy man. He wants to keep it in his sight. He wants to keep it in his possession. He wants it in his land, in his own barns. He doesn't want to give it away to anybody else. That's how selfish he is. Speaking of a selfish and greedy man, there are a couple of examples in the Old Testament. One is the servant of Elisha the prophet. The servant of Elisha the prophet. In 2 Kings chapter 5, you may recall that Elisha the prophet had healed a foreigner, Naaman the Syrian or Aramean, and he was in the, the army, he was a valiant warrior in the army of a foreign nation in 2 Kings chapter 5. Naaman comes to Israel to seek healing from Elisha the prophet. He heard that Elisha has the ability to heal and has miraculous powers. So Elisha, eventually he heals him. And this Naaman, he came with some goods and he wanted to give them to Elisha in thankfulness. But Elisha said, no thank you, I won't take anything from you. But Elisha's servant, his servant's name is Gehazi. It says in 2 Kings 5.20, 2 Kings 5.20, But Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, the man of God, thought, Behold, my master has spared this Naaman the Syrian by not receiving from his hands what he brought. As the Lord lives, I will run after him and take something from him. As the Lord lives, he swears to God, he uses the Lord's name, and he says, Elisha spared him, but I'm not going to spare him. I'm going to get something. 21. So Gehazi pursued Naaman. When Naaman saw one running after him, he came down from the chariot to meet him and said, Is all well? And he said, All is well. My master has sent me, saying, Behold, just now two young men of the sons of the prophets have come to me from the hill country of Ephraim. Please give them a talent of silver and two changes of clothes. And Naaman said, Please uh, be pleased to take two talents. And he urged him and bound two talents of silver in two bags with two changes of clothes and gave them to two of his servants, and they carried them before him. When he came to the hill, he took them from their hand and deposited them in the house, and he sent the men away, and they departed. But he went in and stood before his master, and Elisha said to him, Where have you been, Gehazi? And he said, Your servant went nowhere. Then he said to him, Did not my heart go with you when the man turned from his chariot to meet you? Is it time to receive money and to receive clothes and olive yards and vineyards and sheep and oxen and male and female servants? Therefore, the leprosy of Naaman shall cleave to you and to your descendants forever. So he went out from his presence a leper as white as snow. Naaman uh, Naaman was healed of leprosy and then because of Gehazi's greed, 
Gehazi receives this and his descendants permanently, this curse of leprosy. Why? Because Gehazi was greedy and he lied to the prophet of God. Greedy and he lied to the prophet of God. Gehazi, though, he heard the word of God from Elisha. Gehazi saw the miracles of God by the hand of Elisha. Gehazi knew better than to do this. Yet, brazenly, without no sh- any shame, he went and did that, and he lied all about it. And then he went and hid it in the house. He did all of these things against the will of God, and God repaid him. God repaid him. Another example we have of greed is in 1 Kings chapter 21. 1 Kings chapter 21. The evil king Ahab, king of Israel, evil king Ahab, and his wife, evil wife Jezebel, both are evil people, were evil people. Ahab had a palace, and there was a man who uh, owned the land right next to his palace. Naboth was his name. Naboth had a vineyard next to the palace of Ahab. Naboth um, had um, a prosperous inheritance that he did not want to give up. Ahab wanted it, and Ahab went to him and tried to negotiate a deal, and Naboth said, I can't do this. This is my inheritance. And according to the law of Moses, such as Leviticus 25 and Deuteronomy 25, when one receives an inheritance within the tribe, that should not be sold to somebody outside of the tribe. It's supposed to remain in the tribe and in the family of the one who inherited that from the time of Moses and Joshua onward throughout the history of Israel. That's what he was supposed to do. So Naboth knows the law, and he knows it's wrong to sell it. So he says to Ahab the king, I can't sell it. This is my inheritance, and I need to bequeath it to my own descendants. I can't do this. Ahab goes back home. He pouts and complains. He mopes and gropes all around the house, and his wife Jezebel says, What's wrong with you? You're the king. You should be happy. Implication. He explains to her, And then Jezebel says, I'll take care of it. So how does Jezebel take care of it? Jezebel goes and finds two worthless men, two sons of Satan, to lie about Naboth and to take him to court and say, we heard this Naboth cursing God and the king. And the penalty for cursing God and the king was death. So these two men, hired men, went and did that in the court and they got Naboth executed. They got him executed. And then Ahab was told, okay, it's taken care of. And he goes down and he goes and he takes possession of the vineyard. Then what happens? Elijah the prophet comes. Elijah the prophet comes and confronts him and says the following. Verse 17. 1 Kings 21, 17. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Arise, Go down to meet Ahab, king of Israel, who is in Samaria. Behold, he is in the vineyard of Naboth, where he has gone down to take possession of it. And you shall speak to him, saying, Thus says the Lord, Have you murdered and also taken possession? And you shall speak to him, saying, Thus says the Lord, In the place where the dogs licked up the blood of Naboth, the dogs shall lick up your blood, even yours. And Ahab said to Elijah, Have you found me, O my enemy? 
And he answered, I have found you, because you have sold yourself to do evil in the sight of the Lord. Behold, I will bring evil upon you, and will utterly sweep you away, and will cut off from Ahab every male, both bond and free in Israel. And I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and like the house of Baasha, the son of Ahijah, because of the provocation with which you have provoked me to anger, and because you have made Israel sin. And of Jezebel also has the Lord spoken, saying, The dogs shall eat Jezebel in the district of Jezreel. The one belonging to Ahab who dies in the city, the dogs shall eat. And the one who dies in the field, the birds of heaven shall eat. This was the curse placed on Ahab and Jezebel. Now, there is also a curse in our passage. Luke 12, verse 19. Let's pick it up in 12, 19 and following. Remember, this rich landowner is still talking, and he says, Luke twelve nineteen, And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, You fool, this very night your soul is required of you, and now who will own what you have prepared? Firstly, we see in 19, that he's still talking to himself. He's not consulting anybody else, and especially he's not consulting God. He consults himself, he says, to his own soul. Soul. He's very happy about himself, is he not? You have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. See, for a short time, Gehazi thought everything was fine with him until he went to see Elisha. And also for a short time, Ahab and Jezebel thought everything was fine with them until Elijah found Ahab and confronted him and told him about the judgment that would come on him. In the same way, this man in the parable thinks everything is fine. He has many goods laid up for many years to come. Eat, take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. You know the the expression, Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we may die. That's first found in Isaiah, Isaiah the prophet, 22, 13, 56, 12. And then Paul says it in 1 Corinthians 15, 32, that if the life to come isn't real, if there is no resurrection from the dead, if there's no judgment to come, there's no day of judgment, if none of these things is true, and if the gospel isn't true, then let's just eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we may die. And if we die... Don't sweat it. Nothing else is going to happen after we die. Many people believe that. They believe they will be extinct or annihilated, completely cease to exist upon death. That's what they think. And yet, that's not the reality. The reality is, verse 20, But God said to him, You fool! He calls, God calls him a fool. Professing to be wise, they became fools. It says in Romans 1, 22, they claim to be wise, they think they're brilliant and sophisticated, when actually they are miserable wretches, they are fools, they are ignorant, and they don't have sophistication. No sophistication to love their own soul, let alone the souls of somebody else, because it says, this very night your soul is required of you. Who is the one that ordained this man's uh, existence? Did he bring himself into the world? 
No, his parents did, of course, like all of us. But who is the one that gave conception to the mother of all of us? God did, right? right. God did. And yet, he doesn't understand that if God brought about his existence, God is also the one who takes away his existence on the earth, who takes away his life. He didn't understand like Job did. Though Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. He didn't look at, at his possessions. Even though Job was wealthy, Job had the right attitude, but this man did not look at his possessions correctly. He did not realize that God gave and God can take away. And also, this very night, suddenly, without your knowledge, without consulting you, God may take away your life, right? Accidents happen all the time. People don't know how long they will live. People die at a young age. They die in infancy. They die in childhood. They die as teenagers. They die while they're driving down the road. They die in all kinds of circumstances. All kinds of accidents happen. You never know if there's a criminal around the corner. All of, That's the way life is. So, now who will own what you have prepared? Nobody's going to own it. Who's going to own it? You didn't make provision for that. You didn't love your own posterity enough to prepare for them. You were just thinking about yourself. You didn't pre prepare a will. You, you didn't look at the future. You, you weren't generous with your possessions to give it to them before you die. Some of it, at least. You didn't do anything like that. So who's going to own it all? Back then, and just as we do now, if you don't have any preparations, who's going to seize it all? The government will. They'll take it all away. And then it'll go into a deep black pit, a pit of snakes, poisonous snakes. That's where it goes. If you don't prepare, right? That's where it will go. And he didn't think about it. And also, one more phrase there. It says, your soul is required of you. Your soul is required of you. Do we really love each other uh, or love um, ourselves? Do we really love ourselves if we don't love our souls properly? No. No, we don't love ourselves if we don't love our souls properly. We don't. Even Jesus said, For what will a man be profited if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Matthew 16, 26. If we love ourselves, we'll consider the life to come. Because this life is only preparation for the life to come. God created the world to judge the world. Romans 3, 6 says, Otherwise, how will God judge the world? God prepared the circumstances of this world to prepare it for the day of judgment. That's what... The scriptures teach, Acts 17, 30 and 31. God is now declaring to all men everywhere to repent, for he has fixed the day in which he will judge the world in righteousness. God has prepared the world to judge the world. So if we love ourselves, let's make sure we are prepared for that day when we meet God face to face. And the only way to be prepared is to believe in Jesus Christ. Believe that he died on the cross for our sins and rose from the dead to give us life. That's the only way. Repent and believe. 
The soul will be required of everyone. Hebrews 9, 27. For it is appointed for men to die once, and after this, the judgment. To die once, and after this, the judgment. Hebrews 9, 27. This is the way God has ordained it. Finally, 21. This is the moral of the story, or the the thesis of the parable. So is the man who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. This is the miserable outcome of a man who lays up treasure for himself. In the instance of Gehazi and even Ahab and Jezebel, they had something that happened to them in their own lifetime. They had a warning They had the leprosy, or in the case of Ahab, he had a premature death. He died in battle. And then in Jezebel's case, she was um, uh, on the second story. And the men around her, uh, they threw her over the balcony and she died and was splattered on the ground. And the dogs came up and ate her and licked her blood. And the only thing left was her her skull in her hands. And that was it. And they, they dragged off the rest and they ate the rest. They licked up the blood of her. So those things happened. But those are just tokens in Scripture and outside of Scripture of the judgment to come. Rich towards themselves, but not rich toward God. That's why Jude says in Jude 7, in explaining the the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, he says, Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they, in the same way as these, indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh, are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. When Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed in the time of Abraham and Lot, they were not just destroyed physically, but that was an emblem and illustration of the fact that they were thrown into hell. He says they are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. Jude verse 7. So, how can we be prepared? Be rich toward God. Be rich toward God. When we hear the gospel, the true gospel, there's a lot of fake gospels out there, but when we hear the true gospel, when we read it here in the Bible, we ought to believe it. Jesus, Son of God and Son of Man, true God, fully God and fully man, yet without sin, born of a virgin, lived a sinless life. He died Um, on the cross, not for his sins because he committed no sins, because death is a consequence of sin. So if he died, he he did not die for his own sins. He died for our sins if we believe in him. We must believe for his death to have any uh, efficaciousness or any effect on us. We just can't say, well, he died on the cross and everybody's going to be just fine. No, we have to believe in it. Believe that he died in my place. And if we believe, we will desire to repent. We used to live for sin. We used to live for ourselves, but not anymore. If we truly believe that he died for us, if we believe he died for us, we say that we want to give up our past and we want to strive for him. We want to cling to him. We want to hold fast our confession in him. That's what we want. That's being rich toward God. That's the beginning of it. The beginning of it from our conversion until our coffin. That's the way we should be. From conversion to coffin. From the time we 
place our faith in Christ until the time we meet Christ face to face. We ought to live for him, not for the world, not for our pleasures. With food and covering with these we shall be content. However, it also means we need to tell others about this. Being rich toward God means we live a contented life, a life that's fixed on Christ, that is hopeful in the things of Christ, and otherwise we live for what? To open our mouth and be a preacher of righteousness like Noah, and then also to live our life, a godly life, so that we reflect the true words that we speak. We cannot be hypocrites. And all of us, we will stumble in many ways, and inevitably we will be hypocrites in one manner or another. But not in glaring ways we should not, right? Not in stark ways we should not. We need to be above reproach. Above reproach with everybody around us, whether in family or whether among friends, co-workers, at school, wherever we go, we have to be above reproach. Live a godly life. Then we will be showing that we truly believe the gospel. If we preach the true gospel to others and if we live the true gospel in front of others, regardless of what they say. Live for the world to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.